Hey, and welcome to The Token Daily. I'm your host, Suna Amaz. Each week, we sit down with movers and shakers in crypto to discuss big ideas, both in crypto and outside of it. Everything from trends we're seeing in the space to the books we're reading lately. This podcast is presented by the folks over at Blockworks Group, a blockchain event and media production company. For exclusive content and events that provide insights into the crypto and blockchain space, visit them at blockworksgroup.io. Time to give a shout out to one of our sponsors. Coindesk, the number one media outlet for all things blockchain and crypto, is hosting Consensus, its annual event in New York City. Tickets are on sale now at www.consensus2019.com. That's Consensus with a U, and you can save $300 if you use promo code TOKEN300. On today's episode, we sit down with independent analyst and angel investor Tony Shang to discuss his writing process, gaming and crypto, contributing to Bitcoin Core, and crypto fundamentals. Hey, Tony. So excited to have you on the podcast today. So happy to be here. And for our listeners who don't already know who you are or why you're known as the Ben Thompson of crypto, can you give a little background about your journey into crypto and what you're up to today? Journey into crypto is a longer story. Maybe I'll circle back to that. But today uh, I write on my site, TonyShang.com. I advise a few crypto projects that I'm really excited about and I'm an active angel investor. Uh, Prior to, I I recently uh, left a project called Decentraland where I was leading product for about a year and a half. Um, And before that, string of startups, uh, string of big companies, mostly in product management strategy roles. And what was the journey leading up to joining Decentraland? Um, How did you find out about Decentraland? So I found out about Decentraland as they were kind of formulating the idea because I was at a VR world uh, company called Altspace VR. And at Altspace VR, you could create these VR rooms and hang out with strangers or friends and feel like you were there together in person. That company got bought uh, in October of, I think, 17 by Microsoft. Um, but uh, the Decentraland team was trying to uh, acquire more expertise on the VR side. They were really, really strong on the blockchain side. And so I started advising them around that time. And um, that relationship blossomed into a, um, a multi-year working relationship. And while you were at Decentraland, you were putting out amazing pieces um, about your thoughts in general on the space. And then I think you really hit your stride with launching TonyShang.com and started picking on like these more macro level philosophical ideas or like game theoretical ideas and then providing concrete examples. So kind of like this top to bottom approach. And I was wondering like how you knew you'd hit your stride or like when you're thinking about what to write, what does that process look like? Yeah. So I, I, till this day, to this day, I really write for myself to try to try to figure out how to make sense of all the craziness in the space. Um, when I started a year and a half ago, almost two years now, it was just, I had no audience, didn't really aspire to have an audience. I was just um, sitting down and trying to make sense of what was interesting. And uh, there are obviously attractive things about crypto from that side. There's so much uh, complexity, so much unknown stuff. And um, I started publishing them publicly. And I think there were a couple of pieces that did really well. And I uh, got so much out of the feedback from people reading it and corrected some of my ideas, got new ideas and um, started to see how sharing it publicly would would both strengthen my ideas and also spark conversations that I wanted to see happen in the space. And you talk about writing what interests you or like writing for yourself. Um, and what are those topics? Like what are the things where like you read or you come across and like that's something that definitely piques my curiosity? There, I have kind of two modes. One is this um, outcome, like societal outcome related mode where I just want to see more freedom and prosperity in the world. And that's how I got really excited about Ethereum. Um, And Bitcoin too, uh, years before that. Uh, There's just this feeling that this technology can lead to systems and ways of cooperation that are different from today. And the the problems of today's systems are becoming more apparent with all this big tech stuff. Uh, So I was really, I got really, how do you say, uh, 
engrossed in those ideas. And my writing was a way to kind of untangle the dreams from the realities and see you know, what, what kind of opportunities might, might we be missing? What kind of opportunities might, what might we be overrating? Uh, and what are the paths to get to you know, more freedom, more prosperity? And on the other side, I'm, I'm like a very competitive person and really practical person. And my, um, all throughout my life, I've been competitive. So I'm really interested in how individual actors in the space can make decisions that better position them to win in whatever way that means for them. I think you hit on something incredibly powerful there. And when you're talking about freedom, you're talking about competition or just uh, more like these behaviors in society. I mean, that resonates with every single human that's participating in a society, right? Like these are values that transcend the space that you're writing about. So if I'm not actively following the SEC or not following like, you know, mitigating risks on certain exchanges or care for custody solutions, et cetera. A lot of these pieces that do you do see coming out of the space, like kind of, you know, you all kind of glaze, you have just a dead eyed look or like your eyes glaze over. And, you know, a lot of people aren't interested in reading that. Um, part of it, which for some people is a feature, but I really do think should be a bug, is the language and the jargon obfuscates the actual meaning. And so you get to feel important or people feel as though they should listen to you because they don't understand it. And certainly that must mean you're smarter, right? When oftentimes it's you know, the opposite. But I think secondly is that it really does, I think, more for adoption because you can all of a sudden see yourself participating in the system or at least see how it affects you. And I think it's incredibly powerful. So- yeah, there's uh, the, the folks that are able to translate some of the kind of niche developments and language into layman's terms are real heroes in this space. And I don't think they get enough credit. And I I don't necessarily think I would put myself in that category even. So this isn't, um, I don't see myself that way. Uh, I try to make things easy to read and um, it's definitely a goal of mine, but you know, there are folks that have been really, really instrumental in uh, exposing this stuff to everyday people by making it easier to understand. Absolutely. It, it depends on the niche uh, you're, you're talking about. So you don't, you yourself don't specialize in one specific sector. It's like, what are these general trends we're seeing? What are societal impacts? And I think that completely resonates with people on, on a human level. Um, mm. You are incredibly consistent about the work you put out. And that kind of diligence um, is uh, enviable. And I'm sure a lot of people that read your work are like, how does he always think of these? You know, how, how are these consistently coming about? What does your writing process look like? Like you are about to write what goes into your week or what goes into your daily routine that helps you set it up such that you're able to be this consistent? Yeah. I'm, I, uh, starting out, I, I knew I wanted to be high volume. And that's the advice I give to everybody who wants to put out some kind of creative work. And um, it's founded in what I've, I've, I've blogged for periods many times in my life. This is the longest streak I've had. Um, but Julia Cameron's books, uh, The Artist's Way and The Right to Write were really helpful for me because she um, is all about consistency and unlocking whatever words that are inside of you that you might feel are blocked. Um, and the, the, what she's most well known for is this practice called morning pages, where you every single day, first thing in the morning, you write three pages of whatever. And most people, they just throw those away. And I think she even encourages you to throw those away. It's kind of like, a, like you know, warming up before going to the gym or something like that. But I, I do kind of a bastardized approach of that where I sit down and just write stuff for the blog and don't. And I think, you know, what kind of an aside, um, some days I realize that I haven't done any of the kind of natural free flowing, write about anything stuff. And I do that and it feels really good. But uh, yeah, so basically I just follow a morning pages type routine where I wake up every day and I write for some period of time. It's gotten more flexible over time, but something like an hour or two. Most days, completely blank page. Don't really think about it. Just sit down and start writing. Um, Other days, it's picking up a piece that I had already started working on and finishing that up. Um, But the... uh, there's you know some some kind of ref, refinery ops work from there, but by 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 far the the most important thing is just getting lots of words on the page to start with. Absolutely, there's this you know comp- concept of just getting your reps in, and there's this study that I mean I'm sure uh, some of our listeners are familiar with where 
you take two groups um, that are doing pottery, right? And you have one group um, create as many pots or vases or whatever as, as they can. And the other group, you set them with the assignment to just create the perfect vase, like the perfect pot. And ultimately the people who have the highest uh, volume um, actually also end up creating um, the most perfect, like highest quality, right? So, so one side is mm. prioritizing quantity and one side is prioritizing quality. But ironically, the highest quality also comes from the highest quantity folks, even though they're not optimizing for that. And that's coming from sheer repetition and just sheer amounts. Like things are inevitably getting better over time, even though that's not the goal they're setting out to do. So I think that with that writing, it's a different manifestation of that I think exercise yeah I, I love that that's that's really interesting um I think like you know uh I, I was really lucky as a kid to play to do a lot of competitive things and you really see the results of repetition when you have to go head to head against somebody else and I think it's something that's missing in a lot of areas like when you go to work most times you don't actually get this really concentrated repetition in so you have this kind of variable day you do a lot of different things and maybe there's one task that's really the core of your work but the time in between doing that task is is oftentimes high um so yeah i wonder i, I think you know really dense periods of repetition on on the skills that you really care about is underrated even even though it's uh, well known to improve performance <laughs> absolutely the last question i'll ask on your writing process is and I often hear writers say this, um, like, you know, if you want to be a good writer, then you have to read a lot. You have to be a good reader. And so I'm curious, what do you, what are you reading? What are the sources you tap into to get inspiration or to, to stay up to date on what's going on? And this isn't an ask for you to shill Token Daily, <laughs> but I'm sure. But I'm Oh yeah, no. So, so Token Daily is where I start and end my day. <laughs> I, I, I wake up and I read Token Daily, then I listen to the podcast and then I go to bed reflecting on what I what I consumed that day from Token Amazing. Daily. No, actually, question. <laughs> <laughs> um, I actually, I try to uh, not consume too much crypto content um, oh, because I, I, I feel like I get enough of it inbound just from conversations with people in the space and uh, in between shit posting on Twitter to have a sense of what's going on. So the, the newsy, like low latency stuff from... Uh, crypto news and reporting uh, it hasn't, I, I haven't really ever felt that that's like particularly useful for me. So what I end up spending more of my time on is uh, like reading history books or um, like more theoretical work. So to give you an example, um, today I'm, I'm, I was studying uh, Marshall McLuhan's uh, media work and he's famous for the, the McLuhan equation which is uh, the medium is the message. Have you heard that? Um, I have not. Can you explain for me and for our listeners? Oh, yeah, sure. So uh, it, it's, it's a really popular quote, and I'd heard it many times in the past, but I always con confused it because I thought what he was saying is that the message was content. And so the medium dictates content or the medium is more important than content or something. But he's actually saying something kind of different. He's saying uh, the medium is like an extension of human capabilities. So um, like say language is an extension of our thoughts uh, and lang so language is a medium and, and cell phones are an extension of our social connectivity and our ability to access lots of data or whatever. So that's the medium. Then there's content, which is like the literal stuff that's being transmitted through that medium. So a tweet is the content of Twitter. But the, the message itself is the... Uh, kind of the change that occurs in the environment as a result of the medium, which is pretty interesting because it, uh, to, to, to make it more concrete, so think of uh, a family watching TV at dinner. The, the medium is the television. The content is the broadcast. And in this, the example he uses, it's um, uh, reporting on a crime in their neighborhood. And then the message is increased fear in that neighborhood. And the reason that fear happens isn't because of that that ha that thing happening. It's because the TV brought that content into their living room as they're having dinner. And so if you expand that to, and I think it's been started to get cited a lot in conversations about Twitter and Facebook and politics and all that kind of stuff. But the, those mediums of social media, of uh, just like, 
you know, global connect connectedness, 24 seven minute by minute news cycles, all this kind of stuff. These are mediums and they have some content. We tend to focus on the content, but the message gets overlooked until it's kind of, you know, too late, so to speak. Um, so for, you know, over a decade now, what is it? Almost 20 years since Facebook came out. Mostly we've been focusing on status updates, pictures, whatever, but all this, all this while, um, there was this kind of predictable, well, not necessarily predictable, but, you know, more predictable than we predicted as a society message that was occurring, um, that had this environmental shift that really is changing everything. And, uh, yeah. So, so, I mean, you know, you you can kind of take that concept, apply to crypto. There are a lot of interesting things to think about there. Absolutely. I think, um, a lot of, I mean, news doesn't do a great job of, I mean, unless you take a collection of like a high, like you take a collection of different articles and then try to find patterns or principles that you can extract from them. But even then a lot of it is you decluttering and trying to extract the signal from the noise. And so I agree with you and like the more of these, um, when you are publishing like a history book or you are publishing something that is in a longer form, um, it tends to have more principles or more, um, more in, enduring thoughts that are uh, like inextricably linked. Whereas I think I view news as like fast food of, of content production where mm-hmm. it's just get it out there. We need to get a, you know, a, a quick takes, um, just a recap of the events that, you know, we may or may not be true these days. So, so um, I, I completely agree with that view. Switching gears for a, a second. Um, I wanted to go back to uh, the gaming part of crypto. Um, you know, you spent a lot of time in VR land, you previously worked at Decentraland, and I know that you'd spent a lot of time thinking about um, gaming and as well as competition. And I'm curious, like on the product side, and that may be in the form of NFTs, um, we saw Satoshi's treasure hunt um, recently launch. How do you think about gaming and crypto? Yeah, I mean, I mean big disappointment overall, I think. Uh, not not to knock on teams, but um I love games. So I, the ingredients seem to be there for something really awesome to happen in crypto gaming. And, and I don't want to say, I don't want to oversell the disappointment. There are some really awesome teams building really awesome things. And I think with new uh, technologies and better user experiences, those things have promise. But um, I can't help but think that a lot of the dominant narratives around crypto games is uh, fantasy. And particularly around this kind of like interoperable ecosystem of assets, uh, there's this dream that if you mint, say, a pair of pants in game one, you can wear that pair of pants in game two. And maybe those pants are um, a rare card in game three or something like that. And I, I just don't... If you just think for a little bit about the incentives, that doesn't really make a ton of sense. So um, things like Satoshi's Treasure are also interesting, uh, but they're they're interesting in a different way. They're not really, and, and for background, Satoshi's Treasure is this massive kind of treasure hunt to find uh, keys to a big multi-sig wallet with a million dollars in it. And it's really cool, but it's not... Uh, it's a different type of game than the crypto games people got really excited about around the launch of CryptoKitties in 2017. So one idea I've been playing around with is that what we consider crypto games actually shouldn't be considered this monolithic category. Uh, there are all of these different forms of gameplay that you can uh, design uh, using these technologies. And some of them have more kind of like logical merit than others. Satoshi's Treasure is part of this puzzle genre that's been around for a long time. There are clear benefits to the puzzle genre. You have um, a, a prize that people are incentivized to get, and it's pretty fun. The drawbacks there are it's like highly reliant on trust because there are some one issuer of the prize, and they know some usually like all of the clues and could just take the prize. In this case, I think it's split between two or three people. So it's it's like this really fun, cool thing that people should do. And it's, um, but it's not, you know, 
trustless, so to speak. And then on the other hand, on the other end of the spectrum, there's these games that want to be completely open and permissionless and interoperable with everything. And uh, they focus so much on the technology, like that the, the um, like the the functions that smart contracts afford, that they don't focus that much on making the game fun. And so what I what I'd love to see more of is like actually fun games that have features enabled by smart contracts. Um, but yeah, um, Eric Meltzer, uh, you know, who launched Satoshi Treasure and I'm also a partner at Prune Adventures. We recently recorded an episode I haven't published yet, but he echoed similar sentiments where there was a lot more promise he felt, um, for gaming and it certainly hasn't lived up to that bar yet. And one of his major complaints is, you know, there are a couple things going on. So one, yes, maybe as games become increasingly OSS and studios start opening up, you know, they're kind of like walled economies and don't care much about, you know, merch and, and, and more of these um, economic monopolies or franchises they have for um, uh, ways to profit off of, um, you know, the, the actual brand. Um, and then they o- open that up and allow interoperability to, um, happen at scale. And, you know, that obviously won't be of the comp- company's volition. That has to be kind of user demand. But in order to have users demand it, it needs to be something that is completely net new. And it's not something where, oh, you know, but this was built on Ethereum. So I'm definitely going to use it now because on the for the end user, nothing really has changed. Like this looks like any desktop game that they could access, right? But all of a sudden, like that character appears in another game that itself wasn't incredibly, um, it didn't keep people playing for a long enough time or didn't acquire as big a user base um, to keep them there. And I think it's just a really tough problem because what you're aiming for is something that is net new or incredibly difficult to do in 2.0 that also has to overcome this like activation energy where gaming studios um, and all these incredibly big players um, start entering that space and start feeling pressure to be more um, open source or to be a little bit more open in general with um, their games. And I just think it's a very long road ahead. Yeah. And and there's so many different properties. It's not just transparency. It's not just interoperability. It's not just um, unseizability of assets or, you know, what, what, what have you there. You could list a dozen properties that somebody includes in their platonic ideal of decentralized. And just be, just because one company chooses one of them doesn't mean that they have all the other ones. So if it's, um, yeah, it's, it's hard to imagine why a big gaming company that makes fun games would want to take away from their bottom line to experiment with these technologies. And that, that was, uh, I think that's why that combined with my experience working in games is why a lot of people ask me about crypto games. Uh, the, the piece I wrote about the, you know, would Fortnite use ERC-20s or ERC-721s is what got me a lot of inbound uh, on, on crypto gaming. And the, uh, the kind of the bigger picture to me is like, you just think about incentives. Think about what is an individual or a group want to optimize for? And for a company, it's shareholder returns. And shareholder returns means revenue and profits. Um so the only reason somebody there there are kind of two or three outcomes that I can see. One, there's this like massive paradigm shift where actually opening things up and taking away benefits from one side of the business actually like 10x is the other side. I don't I can't form that mental model yet. And I haven't nobody's been able to do that for me. Um, but it's like, yeah, but you're you're thinking too small. Like, what about this new economy? It's like, okay, well, tell me about it. Um, the second thing is there are going to be some specific applications of these technologies that are beneficial for them. And the third is that there's nothing and it's just going to be status quo. I think it'll probably be somewhere in the second, because if you look outside of gaming, there are all these companies that are experimenting with their own tokens and chains, but what they're not doing is creating a public chain or like building on top of a public chain for the purposes of being more open and sharing with other uh, participants like they they are going to want to maintain control 
and have something that's net positive to their business. So something I could see happening is rather than say like, you know, Blizzard making Overwatch characters work in other games uh, with no strings attached, they might try to create a platform where other companies build games on their platform and there's like, you know, Blizzard chain and everybody built on Blizzard chain. But then you have that, you continue to have this problem. It's like people waiting in line for the water fountain and everybody just keeps trying to cut in front of the other person, trying to be closer and closer to the water, the water being like the metaphorical value being created. So if there's new value to be created by implementing these technologies, the incentive is for people to keep trying to get closer and closer and closer to that value. And that this 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 kind of thinking extends everywhere in this space. That's why everybody's in competition all the time. They're all trying to figure out like where are these sources of value and how can I position myself to be the like the best capture of that value. Um, a lot of this other a lot of this thinking about this idyllic, open, permissionless world is um, uh, idyllic. <laughs> runs counter to yeah yeah exactly that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and, and and even in that world, right? Like, there's that idyllic world is, um, you know, powered by one public chain at the bottom, right? Or some set of technologies at the bottom that uh, presumably are capturing value. And in crypto games land, it's like you know people are talking about EOS or Ethereum, or I guess even Tron right now. And so they're like, okay, well, imagine this really amazing open permissionless network that's fair and free to everybody and and just great. Well, part of the reason you want that to happen is because you really want that base chain to capture a lot of the value that's created in that new ecosystem. Yeah. Yeah. Um, absolutely. I mean, I, I always hear the, you know, the, the story or like, um, you know, your game might shut down or like they might add a feature that you don't agree with and you want to recreate the entire game or, you know, find, find the stores and like keep it going. And I don't know how much I buy into that narrative. Um, but it's going to be interesting to see this play out. Certainly. Um, I think it's good to remember that uh, underneath it all, there's still like one chain or like these, or, you know, there might be a few chains that in this idyllic world still, still are more like these implicit type of monopolies. And, you know, they, outside of uh, Bitcoin, they have like, you know, clear investors in it and they have clear um, organizations that have their own vested interests behind it. So it can be interesting to see that develop. Um, so in one of your most recent posts, you discussed how you're thinking about contributing to Bitcoin Core. And I'm curious what that journey has looked like and what the path forward looks like for you right now. Yeah, I, I was just really curious about how it worked. And I so I have... I have some spare cycles right now, um, very, very quickly disappearing spare cycles. But uh, at the time I had pretty blank calendar and was like, well, what's, what's something that would be f interesting to contribute to? And I thought um, Bitcoin Core would be something that I, I've, I've largely, yeah, I've been a huge believer of Bitcoin since very early on, like, I don't know, 2000, early 2010s. Um, and but have spent so much time in Ethereum and next gen smart contract DAP stuff because that's where my functional expertise has um, been a better fit for. So I thought it was about time that I looked at Bitcoin more carefully. And so my my background's in product management. I've done that at a bunch of companies now. And there's uh, one guy that everybody recommended I talk to named Steve Lee who is the creator of Bitcoin OPSEC, which is this awesome newsletter that just goes over all of the uh, technological developments in the Bitcoin ecosystem. And so I, I chatted with him a little bit and he said that the, the two things that uh, would be highly valuable for somebody with my background is to uh, write tests for core code um, and review uh, pull requests, uh, which are you know proposed code updates to whatever repositories they're contributing to. And um, I, I'm still really interested in doing that, but my technical skills lag a little bit behind being able to do that. I think it would require some really dedicated work there. So I, I have this kind of prioritization of work problem here where I really would love to find a way to contribute to Bitcoin, uh, but to do so requires quite a lot of upfront work, either in the like acquiring the technical skills to do it and the um, kind of proving your commitment and uh, you know, good faith intentions to this relatively small group of um, 
dedicated contributors contributors to core. So I, I don't know yet whether I'll have enough capacity to make this happen. Um, something I'm still actively exploring. The the thing that I would really love to see, and if any of the listeners have any recommendations, is like really kind of lightweight, low friction ways to contribute. And Nick Carter's suggestion was, you know, like what, what a lot of what he does is he uh, disambiguates terms or uh, tries to explain concepts or dispels misconceptions, things like that. And I think that's totally valid. So I think I'll probably do some of that. But what what's interesting thematically about um, public goods and uh, like one's ability to either harness or not harness the the enthusiasm of a community is like, what are the really low friction entry points for people to add value to these networks? Um, and I, I think Bitcoin is pretty far on the extreme because they are so, uh, they're so, I guess, you know, uh, unified in their, I don't know how to put this really. It's just, there, there's less, while, while on the one hand, there's a lot more anarchy around Bitcoin governance. And on the other hand, there's a lot less. There's like more social uh, norms around getting involved. Whereas with uh, Ethereum and some of the projects on top of Ethereum, it's kind of like, you know, whoever's interested, just like show up and start doing stuff. Um, so yeah, really, really fascinating like corners of the world. I, uh, I have a, a comment about the organization of it, um, but b- before I, I jump into it, um, I, 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 I've asked, you know, Bitcoin core developers, like if somebody came up to you and was like, I want to, you know, contribute to Bitcoin core, become a Bitcoin core developer, what would you tell them? And like it, and I mean, the unanimous thing that I've heard um, is that it's tough at this point in the game to meaningfully contribute to Bitcoin core um, as a new developer. Um, but you can meaningfully um, contribute to projects that are a little bit earlier on that are helping with mm. the infrastructure. So um, just because you're not working on Bitcoin proper doesn't mean, or you know, the, or the the popular Bitcoin software program doesn't mean you cannot contribute um, in other ways. And there are things like obviously Lightning um, is an excellent community that's still um, it's like earlier, arguably earlier days. Um, and then um, things like Betterhash, where you know you're like you're looking at the mining side of um, like what are Bitcoin miners using and like what does the protocol actually look like and things that are more antiquated like Stratum that you could um, you know figure out ways to enhance. So um, there are ways to contribute, but I, I, I I've heard similar things. You're not alone in saying that you know Bitcoin cores um, uh, contributing to Bitcoin core is a different scene than it was you know, like, uh, nine, 10 years ago, certainly. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, I don't, I don't know whether that's a, a good or bad thing. Like I can see the merits to both. It's, it's actually kind of, it might be a strength of Bitcoins that there is this high activation energy to bring in new people to absolutely. meaningfully absolutely. have power in the system. If it's my money, <laughs> if it's my money, or like it's a store of value, I certainly, certainly agree with that. I don't yeah, want that. Totally. Um, would prefer that over, um, you know, anybody, I mean, even looking at like our system, um, if anybody just walked into the fed the first day and like had a complete control, <laughs> I'd, be, yeah, I'd be incredibly worried. Um, and, and, and the other thing I want to talk about before we jump into crypto anarchism versus incrementalism is just this idea of, you know, I think, uh, in the, in certain communities where you kind of just band over a certain problem and then maybe disband when you find another interesting problem to go over and it's incredibly easy to, you know, uh, contribute and then move in between projects. I think those, I came across an interesting uh, term recently, which is like an ad hocracy, where you form around this problem, it's kind of execute, execute, trial, get feedback, loop again. And it's very similar to how startups work, right? And then there's like more of these chaotic type of, environments where there is more formal structure but you know you have moments of chaos and it isn't it's not as smooth running but um it seems like there's more of a level of uh, bureaucracy that exists in chaotic organizations versus um ad hocracies and so maybe that's kind of how i delineate the two um you still have flexibility um but uh one seems a little bit more uh more of like this implicit uh process that's already um 
already in place. And, and I think, yeah, that's how I do. I, I personally love um, being able to cleanly uh, attribute something to, or like have a, a, a label that I can begin to start categorizing something in my head and compartmentalizing it. And and so that's, that's how I think. And I, I'm really intrigued by those types of organizations, but hmm. um, uh, moving on though to, I mean, well, on the same note, um, so so you had written a piece on crypto anarchy versus incrementalism. And before I ask you what, what, if your thoughts have changed at all there, um, can you give a, a brief overview to our listeners um, about that blog post? Yeah, it was uh, it was the result of my first real deep study of crypto anarchy as a movement. And crypto anarchy um, is considered by many of the uh, kind of the movement from which digital cash efforts spawned. Um, crypto anarchy wants systems that don't have operators where nobody can be marginalized because um, people's actions can't be either detected or attributed to uh, the the um, the person who took the action. So uh, digital cash was attractive because then you have all these people, you don't know how much money they have, you don't know who's there, who's sending money to whom. And as a result, you can't say, you know, freeze the funds of somebody who practices a religion you don't like or whatever. And the idea here was that uh, in all our systems are hierarchical, they have power almost all the time, it leads to some abuses of power. Um, cryptography, strong cryptography affords us a technology that we can use to create these systems where um, there's no person with outsized power, nobody can be marginalized. Um, and they believed that this would lead to freer, uh, more open, more fair societies and groups. And I, and I think that's really cool. Um, so the piece was about approaches to developing technologies in the crypto space. And I said, you know, there, there are crypto anarchic projects who have the design objective of with the crypto anarchists in mind. They want to create these open permissionless things where people, there's no operator with a lot of power. You can't marginalize any users. It's this kind of, you know, can't be evil meme that you see uh, thrown around on crypto Twitter every now and then. And crypto incremental is this idea that, you know, maybe these technologies can afford some efficiency gains to existing systems. Um, crypto anarchic systems want to replace or provide alternatives to existing systems. Crypto incremental systems want to augment existing systems. And I wrote this, I think, over a year ago, maybe. I don't know exactly when, but it, was, it feels like a while ago. And uh, since then, a lot has happened. It's been pretty interesting, actually. There are, and I, I mean, I don't know, we, we'd probably need like several podcasts to cover all the different um, cases where it's, where it's interesting. But we've seen uh, a lot of crypto anarchic projects uh, kind of fail to be crypto anarchic and even start to develop towards being more centralized or to build centralized things on top of them. And we've seen a lot of enthusiasm for um, kind of incremental work uh, and, and, and all these companies launching their own tokens and chains is a version of that. And what's hard for me to see yet is whether any of these projects that spawn in this kind of centralized, controlled by one company thing can eventually morph into something that's crypto anarchic. Um, meanwhile, I've also studied the uh, kind of drawbacks of crypto anarchy a lot more over the years, or over the year. And what their admitted uh, big challenge around crypto anarchic systems is you can't punish bad actors. And there are a lot, there's lots of thinking about how you can do this. But if you just think about it at a very basic level, if you can't either detect what people are doing or who's doing those things, if somebody's doing something really bad, you have no way to call them out, take them out of the system, punish them, whatever. So there's there seems to be this trade that you have to make between being actually crypto anarchic and, and crypto anarchists say like, you know, it's it's binary. It has it's like either you can or you cannot marginalize people. There's no kind of progressive crypto anarchy. Um but is that okay? Is it okay? What's what's net what's net positive? Being unable to punish people or being able to mar marginalize anybody? And I think that's kind of a tension that um, is is totally yet to be resolved in all these systems we're building. And when you say not able to punish people, um, are we not considering um, 
energy loss or monetary loss as a form of punishment. So let's say, for instance, you are a bad actor, as in like quite literally a node that is, you know, trying to deliberately, um, you know, you're validating something, you know, or trying to fool other nodes into validating something that, you know, um, is uh, just garbage being pushed through. Um, Are you, you know, the sheer energy expenditure, like the way you set up the system, you want it such that, um, similar to this, this can't be evil meme where you are punished, um, by the, like by the energy loss, like you make it so it's more profitable to, to play by the rules than, um, to, you know, uh, to, to try to take the entire system down. Right. And so when you say punish, what do you mean? There's an important distinction between a system that's distributed and a system that is crypto anarchic by the like traditional definition. Um, in in the system you're describing, uh, that's it's a distributed system, but you do know who's doing those actions. Like you can point to like node X Y Z is doing that thing. So even if you don't know, like if you don't KYC the person, just knowing who they are is anathema to crypto anarchy. In that in a crypto anarchic system. Um, you wouldn't know what node is doing that. And and they can be paired, right? Like I think you can, some of the solutions that I, people are working on have versions of this where it's like, okay, um, the, the, the guarantees to uh, anonymous or privacy are like, you know, strong enough so, such that um, this is fine. But uh, yeah, the, the important thing is like, can the system marginalize any, particular groups um if it can then it's it's not crypto anarchic mm, okay i see what you're saying yeah um and so would you classify yourself as an uh crypto anarchist or an incremental no <laughs> neither I, I mean i don't know honestly i i just i think there there are really like, like i mentioned before there's this kind of outcome i'd like to see in the world which is more freedom generally and uh you know this is it's a fluid objective for me. But as I reflect on what I think is important and what I care about myself, it's, it usually comes back to some form of freedom. And um, the reason I thought the medium is the message thing was so interesting is uh, with the medium of social networks, you have the message of tribalism and fake news and like distrust and influence from foreign governments on political systems and stuff like that. If you work backwards from a message of uh, like, you know, increased freedom and sovereignty and all this other stuff. Like what is the medium that affords that result? And that's what my initial attraction to Bitcoin was. I think Bitcoin is probably, I mean, no question. It is the, it is the project in the space that has the most clear story there of the the medium is Bitcoin. The message is, you know, like, self-sovereign, unseizable money. Uh, you like feel more secure with with the holdings that you have. And it's affected by all these other things like price volatility and all this other stuff. But this uh, beyond money, what is the medium that's going to lead to more freedom? And what's unknown to me, what, what I'm still trying to work out is, uh, is it something that looks like the smart contract protocols we have today as a foundation for applications that are the kind of alternative to the Facebooks and Googles or whatever in our world? Or is it something that looks different? And is something that's crypto anarchic actually net better or worse? And it's it's kind of hard to say. You, and you have people arguing on both sides. So these these are some of the topics that I'm continuously interested in. And, and I think we'll, I'll continue to explore over the years. Um, wow. I, I actually never thought of it in the perspective of the, like medium, the medium is Bitcoin and the message is freedom, at least. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Um, speaking of um, these topics and like what you're continuing to write about, um, in a retrospective, what's your favorite piece that you've written so far? What was most enjoyable to you? For the sake of sounding more like Marie Kondo. <laughs> 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 um, yeah. Yeah. The, the, the great thing about blogs is you don't, you have unlimited space. So you don't have to Marie Kondo, anything. <laughs> yeah, you don't have to prune it. <laughs> Completely agree. Um, but I actually, I, I can't say that I do have a favorite piece, but I, I think what, because um, the writing is such a, 
like exercise for me. It's like going to the gym. I don't really have like a favorite day of going to the gym. Um, but I do have like favorite pieces that had great, res- like really thought provoking responses, which are memorable. And I don't know if they're favorites, but you know, I-, I was glad to have engaged in the discussions that followed. And so a few that stand out are um, the, the mass movements piece, um, the, which, where I argued that uh, cryptocurrencies are mass movements that naturally want to form tribes of adherence that will uh, evangelize the message and are motivated to get more adherence to that tribe. And it was actually one of the, maybe one of the first pieces that I wrote about competition and how even if it doesn't really seem like things are in competition, they are because of just the social competition of trying to get adherence to join their mass movement. Um, that was that was really cool. And then the crypto gaming one sparked a lot of discussion. Uh, but yeah, in general, it's 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 times when I write something and somebody or some group of people reach out and either build on top of those ideas or um, provide insightful counters to points that I've made. Uh, because at the end of the day, I'm just trying to sharpen my own thinking. And um, it's the pieces that people don't get upset about or excited about that I know I didn't do enough with. Wow. And um, what are some other memorable comments um, or discussions that people have sent you that like made you reconsider or spurred a thought that you hadn't had before that you can recall? My, my favorites have really been people that take a concept that I apply in a post and say, like, you're not doing that correctly. Um, for example, I wrote a piece about how the Bitcoin is a big Keynesian beauty contest and whether it should stable, whether it would ever stabilize in price. And uh, that was actually one of my most popular pieces um, that made it to the front page of Hacker News, which is the only time I've ever seen anything that I've written on Hacker News. And uh, half of the response was like really positive and thought it was insightful. The other half was like, you're an idiot. That doesn't make any sense. Like, and but later on, I actually got some really good feedback that was like, hey, you're, you're applying some of these game theory concepts like somewhat incorrectly. And then like went on to explain all of these like really specific game theory concepts. And so I learned a lot about game theory from publishing that. Um, th- those types of conversations where the piece sparks a discussion about the underlying concepts uh, and furthers my understanding of those concepts um, are definitely the most rewarding. I absolutely love that. I think there's this idea that, and I've heard this before, it's like, so there are certain levels to it. So one level is feeling as though you know enough to begin writing. And that's the trap most people fall into is I don't know enough about this to write about it. And so then like the higher up level there for going like, you know, down the galaxy brain route, it's like the bigger brain is, well, you know, you do 80% of your learning about something through writing. Like you have 20, you have 20%, you like a good, like a firm grasp on it. Or like you've started, but like through actually trying to crystallize your thoughts and communicate them, you begin research, th- researching them. Um, and, uh, and it, it serves as kind of like a forcing function for you to really learn what you're talking about when you're writing it. Cause you're forced to actually look at your thoughts on a page and it's not just in your head, which, you know, your brain kind of wants to, I don't know if it's like an ego thing or whatever, but you always feel as though you know a lot more when you're just thinking about it as opposed to actually crystallizing it and communicating it. And then I think the last part to it, which is what you're getting at, is like a lot of the learning and discovery process actually happens after you've published, which um, which is interesting. And, you know, it's this minor cost. Like, yeah, you may have been wrong in public, but, you know, so what? So many people are going to come out of the woodwork and like give you really good um feedback, uh, point you to resources you may not have um, been pointed to in your close circle of friends that you passed, you know, this medium post by to read. Um, and I think that that part is incredibly valuable and keeping up that momentum only makes you a better writer and thinker over time. Yeah, totally. I, I would never want to be, to try to position as a brand of like being right all the time. You know, I think some people do that and are like predictors of stuff and, you know, it just seems both uh, setting yourself up for failure, but also not the most productive way to spend your time. Absolutely. And oh my God, I'm so happy you brought up a brand because that is something I certainly want to talk to you about. Um, There 
you know, every person, whether or not they're intentional about their brand, has a brand, right? Um, people are perceiving you to be some type of way just by our sheer, surely the way we're wired. Um, and I think you've done an incredible job with your personal brand. And I think what speaks to what speaks most to me about you is your authenticity, um, while also while not there isn't like this trade off between learning in public and some people fear mm, I don't like looking dumb or like you know they don't unless they have all the information I think you have done this great thing where you're incredibly trusted as a credible source and a deep thinker um, who's authentic um, and at the same time uh, may not have 100 percent of the answers and I'm. I'm curious, like, and, and not only that, but you resonate with a lot of people. So I think the other trap people fall into is, you know, if they, um, one thing is like, you know, being hundred percent right all the time. And then I think the second thing is trying to resonate with a large audience. So defaulting to really superficial memes, um, or certain ways of saying things that just, um, are, uh, easy to stick in people's brains, but aren't really saying anything of substance. But I think that you've done a great job um, doing both. And so, um, on both the office authenticity front, and then also saying things of substance that actually resonate with a large audience, um, and not perceiving the audience to be dumber, you know, than they actually are. And I just, there's so many things going on with your personal brand. And I'm curious, like, how do you think about that? Like, how have you, like, what's your advice to people who are trying to, um, also come off, like who are, no, this is a really interesting. I'm probably going to prune a little bit of this when we go through and edit the podcast. But like, what's your advice for people who are trying to resonate with a large user base but don't want to sacrifice authenticity? Yeah, I, I, uh, it's it's really funny that you ask this because I I perceive you as like distinctively good at this in your your way. And I in my first I, I launched a podcast. It's not out yet, but. Um, my first episode was with Peter McCormick, the host of what Bitcoin did. And I asked him what he thinks his superpower is, so to speak, in uh, building his podcast. And he said branding. And nobody really invests as much in it as he does. Or, well, I don't think he said it that way because he's super humble. But that, I mean, I think that's true. Uh, and I was thinking about that. And I was like, I haven't done anything on that side. I don't think about it at all, really. So I, I, I think it's really heartwarming to hear you say such positive things about my brand because I actually am not that aware of um, what my overall brand would be in the space. I think what what has been what has worked for me if it's worked is I've just been really consistent about my intentions um, and what I am trying to do. So I think when you're which is you know try to understand all this stuff I don't there's no part of me that wants to use my uh, my audience to make money or move markets or whatever. Like it's just a place for me to think hard about stuff every morning and force something out a couple times a week. And um, when I'm wrong, I admit it. And people, you know, one one thing I have been curious about is like why do people subscribe to my thing and like especially why do people pay and support the site through membership uh and almost everybody just is interested to see how i think about a given thing they don't expect me to be right about it they don't expect me to agree with it it's just a useful data point like tony's you know he's fed this thing through his brain and put it out this way and and that's an interesting input as i think about things myself so Without the pressure of, you know, a trying to sell some kind of product or shill some kind of bag, um, and with the ex- without like feeling pressure to always be right or um, be like a certain type of person, then you can kind of comfortably just be somebody who's really just doing their best to understand things and uh, being honest about where they are. Like, re- you know, really, all I do is I, I just I'm a big try hard every morning and uh, put out the best of my ability. And whether it's people agree or not, you know, it's kind of people know that that's my best effort. Well, and 
true. Well, well, I hear that. Like, I absolutely hear that. And like being upfront about the discovery process and being honest. But then at the same time for, um, I mean, I've seen that tried as, I've seen people, you know, have the disclosure, like I'm also learning as you guys go. Um, as I go, I'm learning in public. Don't take anything I'm saying is 100% factual. Um, we're here to learn together. And then they just don't produce anything of substance, really. And so how do you determine, like, you know, this is quality and this is ready to be published? Hmm. Well, I, so uh, I think part of it is I'm not going to write something that somebody else already wrote or has, like, sufficiently explored. Oh, I'm wow. not... I, cause that's, it's really interesting you say that. Cause that's, um, I've also received a different advice um, or, or heard people say you should be comfortable writing about something that even somebody else has written about. Um, because not everyone has, you know, necessarily had your take on it. Right. So yeah, I think both those are true for me. I, when, when I say something somebody else has wrote is like, I don't want to pair it an insight somebody already had. So I might cover the same subject matter, but the concept behind it has to be new, at least to me, um, for it to be worth really just my own time. Absolutely. Because if I can read something and be like, oh, I get it, then why would I spend hours writing it out again? Um, that That's uh, that's part of it. So the, the, like, the minimum bar for me is it's like new and interesting to me. And if it's new and interesting to me, I found that and and the requirements for it to be new and interesting to me is that I've like done a reasonable amount of research in that area and understand things to a, a point where I can come up with something new and interesting to say about it. Um, that tends to overlap pretty well with other people who are looking for new and interesting things to read. And and really like new, I really don't like the word new. It's It's not like new in a fresh, like timely kind of way. It's more just kind of um, insightful is the the positive feedback that I get, um, that I, uh, like appreciate the most, you know, it's the, the feedback that, that feels the best to me. So I don't like sit down and say like, how can I make this maximize insightfulness here? But it is, um, like figuring out like, what is the really interesting thought provoking thing that might change somebody's behavior or change somebody's perception on something is like the minimum bar for the things that I'm, is, is my aspiration for things that I write. I like that. I think there's uh, something I just re- I just realized, among, like having this conversation with you, is that you come from an angle of let me peak curiosity, not let me peak rage or let me peak um, kind of a uh, like greediness or type of thing. Like I think the type of reaction you're like uh, aiming for, um, I-, I think you think about the impact it has on the reader um, intellectually and not the impact, you know, it'll drive like their wallet to do or like their, you know, incite some type of like emotional reaction. And I think that's probably a lot of where it comes to. Um, yeah. I, I want, I want my site to be like vegetables and healthy meat, you know, like that, that's kind of <laughs> what, what I want, the, the place I want in the ecosystem. <laughs> Absolutely. No, I love that. Um, so we're running up on the hour, but I wanted to do kind of um, a like hot topic round. And I think there are two hot topics I want to talk about. Um, and the first one is the die stable coin. You had a funny tweet recently where you were using something to the effect of, oh, well, at least, you know, die is still a, and then like, you know, checks notes. Oh, never mind. And you know, <laughs> of course it's still stable coin, but it's clearly, uh, you know, it's, I think it hit a uh, low of 93 cents um, as of this recording. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm curious what your thoughts are around the die um, unstable coin. Yeah. I mean, so I, I think the maker team is brilliant. I, I think the the project is brilliant. Um, it's really, I mean, you know, on Twitter, like, whereas my, my blog and newsletter are very serious and try hard. Twitter is, I'd make just like shit post a lot um, because I think it's fun. Uh, and, and so while like this was kind of just a, a, a lazy meme um, reacting to the USDT thing, but there is some interesting concepts behind this one, you know, that people talk about a lot is just the design itself of um, the maker system and how easy or impossible it is to peg something to a dollar when it isn't, uh, you know, just like literally backed one-to-one with the thing that you want. The other thing is uh, people don't often think of other lending products as directly competitive with Maker, but they are. So the closest competitor in my mind is not 
um, USDC or Tether or other stable coins, it's Dharma or Compound or any other lending platforms that people are building, even centralized ones. Because, and as a result, you have this like strange ecosystem effect where um, the mechanic for DAI could work very perfectly in a vacuum where it's just maker and there's no other ways to use DAI. But in a system where there are other places to lend and borrow DAI, then you have all these kind of external effects on it. So I haven't really worked out exactly how all of this works. It's just interesting and adversarial. And I think um, we're just at the very, very beginning of uh, these these projects competing with each other in, in ways that are going to be invisible the most. Absolutely. I'm really interested to see um, the impact it has on the on the DeFi narrative. I um, do find myself you know, being like long-term bullish on the DeFi narrative. I just really do think a, a digital store of value is, I mean, of course, as many people have also pointed out, like kind of the necessary first step. And I just don't, uh, I don't know, this just was, uh, it It wasn't the best news or best thing to, to read, but, you know, we'll see what happens. Um, and mm. uh, the, the second thing I wanted to ask you about, um, and you recently wrote a piece uh, for Breaker Mag about, was uh, Binance Chain, um, especially through the lens of competition, um, how you think about Binance as a player in the space. I mean, Binance is so impressive. It's like... Well, not just in crypto, they've, the company is insane and they've started with an exchange. They became the dominant exchange. They expanded horizontally and vertically, uh, adding tons of tokens, adding other exchange features, and then, um, you know, adding all these ancillary things like research and VC and all this other stuff. So they're like crazy. And so they, they, they have all of this amazing operational execution ability. They have this uh, built-in um, network of supporters and customers. So they so they decided to launch this chain of their own, um, ostensibly to facilitate decentralized exchange. But my, my point here was um, they, they, like everybody else, like we discussed before with the, the line in front of the water fountain or whatever, just seeking areas where value is created and they can capture it, they're going to go where the value is. And there's clear value in exchange, right? Like they just print money on exchange. So going starting with DEX is really smart. It, it makes a ton of sense. And they're going to um, have a uh, kind of stronghold on that because anything that can go to DEX will from Binance. I don't know how much of that it is, but it stands to reason they have a way stronger go-to-market strategy for their DEX than any other DEX that's ever been launched. Then if there's more value to be captured from a a chain that they created, they will. So while it may feel like, and you know, CZ states explicitly, you know, we're not competitors to Ethereum. Um, they are. And uh, I think this is a theme that's really interesting to watch. You have all of these big, powerful, successful, skilled companies uh, starting to encroach on some of the use cases for other public chains. They might start with issuing tokens, transferring tokens, trading tokens. But if there's big money in, say, enabling debt and credit, they'll probably do that. Um, if there's big money in crypto games, they'll probably do that. Uh, so yeah, <laughs> De- definitely something to see. I think people people confuse my piece with like shilling Binance. That's definitely not my intention. It's just to uh, call attention to somebody who is a clear comp- competitor who says they're not a competitor. Yeah, absolutely. I think that I think one of the best things you can say to anybody that you know accuses you of shilling something is like, go look at my portfolio. You know, <laughs> like <laughs> finance. <laughs> like, it's absurd uh, what people will say to um, you know make themselves feel better or like you know don't appreciate nuance when they're actually reading the article. And I think you did a great take. Um, regarding competition, I mean, not only with um, Ethereum and Binance, but also, you know, what we see Tron doing um, in Asian markets, um, you know, barring any bot activity that we may be seeing um, or not. Uh, but um, I, I I think at the root of it all, um, it, it is like, like you say, really tough to um, come under the to say, you know, we are not directly competing with this project, um, especially with anything financial, like there's only a limited number of um, users and uh, their time is limited. And I think uh, the actions you have them do, it's like all of these, like you've mentioned before, like implicit monopolies that are building. And so, um, you know, you can say we're not competitive with this, but ultimately um, we're all kind of playing in the same market. So um, I, I agree. 
<laughs> anyway, um, this has been such a good conversation. Uh, we're running up on the hour and I don't want it to end, but unfortunately we, we must. Thank you so much for being on the show, Tony. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Go to my website, become a member. Yeah, go to TonyShang.com. That is the one thing we will shill today. <laughs> hey everyone, Suna here. If you liked this episode of The Token Daily and want to help us take crypto to the top of Apple, Spotify, and other podcast charts, then please do us a favor and rate, review, and smash that subscribe button. To leave a review, simply go to the Token Daily homepage and scroll down until you see five blank stars. Taking a few seconds to fill those stars in and leaving a quick review goes a long way in helping us take the entire crypto ecosystem to the top of the charts. One more reminder for everyone to check out Consensus, Coindesk's annual event coming up in May. It'll include sessions with Christine Moy, head of JP Morgan's blockchain program, and Brian Armstrong, CEO and co-founder of Coinbase. There'll also be a two-day hackathon at Microsoft's Tech Center, where hundreds of developers will compete for over $30,000 in cash prizes, and you'll be able to network with executives, developers, founders, regulators, and investors in the space. To get your tickets today, you can go to consensus2019.com to register. And don't forget to use code TOKEN300 so they know we sent you. Thanks again for choosing to listen to the Token Daily. I'll see you next time.